time to check your equipment. Shoulder pad? Check. Bike shoes? Check. Poison for spike? Check. Switchblade knives? Check. Brass knuckles? Check. Hand grenades? Check. Then we're ready. How's it going? We're back. It's been a while. We haven't really been able to get out much here in South Australia with all the COVID stuff going on, so we haven't had much to talk about. But you're in for a treat because Errol Mason from Secret to the Sandbar fame is back with us today. And we're going to talk about bushfires and regeneration and what it means for Samba deer and their home ranges and what potentially how you might pattern deer using Errol's system and knowledge that he's sort of built up over X amount of years. So we're going to dive into that shortly. Let's have a little bit of a roll call. Greg, are you there? Yes, good, mate. Good, everyone. Good to be uh, finally recording something, fellas. It's been a while, hasn't it? And Baron, are you there? Yes, mate. Loud and clear. Um, busy with the rum world. Not too much hunting of late, but, you know, uh, people have to fill the glasses somehow and I'm the man to do the job. So it's good to be putting something back on the airwaves again. Excellent. Well, and have well, such a good guest as well. It's, I'm glad that you uh, haven't disappeared down the, down the funnel of a bloody rum, rum barrel or something. Uh, give it time. <laughs> yeah. So I will introduce you directly, Errol, but I just want to remind everybody we've got a competition running at the moment thanks to Sam Heath of Sam Heath Knives. So send us in a photo, tell us a story uh, about the photo. It doesn't have to be horn porn. It can just be a hunting-related photo. Tell us what it means to you, and it's a completely random draw out of a hat. So... Chuck it in, send it to our Facebook page or Instagram, and uh, you could be the winner of a bloody really nice knife. We will be running another competition after Errol's podcast in a month or so as well, and that is thanks to STS Steel Targets. So without further ado, uh, the man of the moment, Errol Mason. Thanks for coming back, mate. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. We had a fantastic uh, response from your last uh, visit with us. So we're really happy to have you back as well. Um, and um, this is a really interesting topic for us around bushfire and, and what it does for deer and, and how we might pattern deer, you know, as a result of fire going through. So, Justin, uh, I don't know, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think after those last podcasts, it was the highest amount of listens we've had ever on a podcast so people were very keen they tuned in and that's why we've got Errol back again because he's just a wealth of knowledge and I think people need to hear it so I'm lucky enough to have all of uh, Errol's Secrets of the Sandbert trilogy and uh, the Hunt Smart System books but it's good for uh, listeners to be able to listen in and get a glimpse of some of the info, and they're going to go out and buy them anyway once they realise how bloody good they are. 
one thing that stood out for me was bushfires. Now, at the moment, the whole East Coast is soaking wet, floods and rain, but wind the clocks back 12, 18 months, some of the worst bushfires in history. And it was on the tip of everyone's tongues as to uh, what happens to deer uh, during a fire and, more importantly, straight after a fire. And it was uh, reading the long-term effects I think it was uh, Secret to the Sound of Volume 2, named Bushfires. And Errol, I see you made a comprehensive study on the effect of the 2003, 2006, 2007 bushfires on Samba in the northeast Victoria and East Gippsland. And you, you spent several years on the ground studying these fires. In addition, you flew over each fire for two and a half hours in a Cessna pilot by Ben Buckley. And I'm just following this from the book from volume two because I found it so interesting. And during his role guiding water bombers to the seat of bushfires, Ben's extremely knowledgeable about bushfire behaviour in the mountains in eastern Victoria. And he was able to provide you a really detailed understanding. Um, and I also read in your book you interviewed and quoted fire ecologist Athel Hodgson and Forrester in Serbi, Serbi, I think that's pronounced that way. Right. In Sabir. Sabir, there we go. Sorry, Ian. Um, and they would have intimate knowledge about the bushfire behaviour. So you've gone into great detail about your study and not just, you know, pulled a... Uh, pulled something out of the forest and just ripped, you know, like so many people do. They've studied it in great detail, but all they've done is a bit of Googling and called themselves an expert. It looks like you've gone to the uptake degree there, Errol. I so have, Justin. Um, there was a lot of different uh, opinions about the effect of bushfires, and um, I certainly had no intimate knowledge myself, so I went to the experts, and at that time, Athel Hodgson is certainly a world expert expert on fire ecology. Yeah, well, my first question would be, because um, it's such a huge subject, you know, and the whole East Coast will want to be tuning in because, it, you know, it was on their forefront. So can you describe the difference of intensities of bushfire and behaviour that describe the effect of each of each on Samba and the environment? Yes, yeah, certainly. Look, I'll just start by making it clear that, as with all bushfires, the heat and intensity and speed of travel of the 2003 and 2607 fires varied tremendously. And as a result, the impact was site-specific. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, but during my study, I, I started to realise that um, an easy way to determine the intensity and speed of a bushfire is to look at the degree of scorching of the tree canopies. Um, and in my book, Volume 2, I referred to this as a scorched canopy test. In most of the if most of the canopies are green um, and have not been scorched, that area was burnt by a cool, low-intensity fire. Cool burns occur on days of low temperature, high humidity and little wind. So the fire trickles along quietly, especially at night 
when the temperature is drops and humidity increases. Samba and other wild, wildlife have a high chance of avoiding cool burns, so there's a high survival rate. Uh, but if there's a mosaic of green and scorched canopy, the fire was of moderate, ten, moderate intensity, and some Samba will have been killed outright, and some survivors will have burnt hooves and have to be destroyed. This certainly was the situation in the Upper Livingston Valley in January 2003, and that was an area at the time where I was uh, guiding full-time on Samba. So I had a really good opportunity there of studying the Samba behaviour, and it was quite amazing uh, what I saw there. Uh, the cooler the burn, the more suitable it is for the germination of the understory plants which Samba eat. This regrowth is spurred along by ash, which contains phosphorus, potassium, calcium, boron, and other uh, beneficial trace elements. Ash is very alkaline, so it raises the pH level of the soil, thereby reducing acidity, which also promotes succulent and wholly nutritious regrowth, which is suitable for all wildlife, not just Samba. Uh, and especially after fires, usually, unless there's a pro there happens during a prolonged drought, which it certainly did during 2003, it was, a, it, it was the start of the first three years of the millennial drought, as you remember, the 10-year drought. But usually uh, good rainfalls within a, a month of these fires. It's, that seems to be one of the phenomenons that follows the, these fierce fires. And if it provided this good rainfall and it wasn't a catastrophic burn, uh, varieties of grasses, tree ferns, wildbriar and blackberry flourish. And like many plants, wildbriar and blackberry benefit hugely from being burnt. In fact, within a month of the 2003 fire, blackberry canes that had been burnt to ground level had grown to 30 centimetres in length and were providing excellent survival food for Samba. If the majority of canopies are scorched across a large area, then the fire was of high intensity and a higher number of Samba will have died. Hotter, more intense fires stimulate the growth of eucalypts instead of the plants that Samba prefer, which is why um, authority, forest authorities, when logging coops are burnt in the April after all the uh, firewood's been removed, their plan, their, their aim is to, to set the hottest possible fire in a logging coop residue because they want to stimulate the growth of eucalypts for, for future logging, of course. Um, then there's the catastrophic fires. But if all canopies are burnt completely off a large swath of forest and the landscape has been burnt bare, with bare tree trunks pointing skywards, then it was burnt by a catastrophic fire. And at least 90% of all deer and other wildlife will have been killed. This area will have an appearance of a moonscape. And when you go to these areas, it will be just total silence. There is no bird song. You won't see carcasses of birds or smaller mammals because they've been vaporized. And even the samba lying around the creeks and rivers, as along the middle of that, that particular after that fire, the middle of the river, uh, and, and um, 
uh, rivers up in the Benambra area, the deer were absolutely burnt. Some of them were almost, they were almost burnt as skeletons. That's how fierce the fire was. So, but when you've got the following conditions at the same time, a catastrophic fire is virtually guaranteed. And these conditions are a tender, dry, high fuel load, temperatures over 40 degrees C, strong wind, extremely low humidity, and a very steep landscape. It's important to note that steep slopes, especially those which face north and northwest, will be burnt by an extremely fast-moving, catastrophic fire, which is impossible to stop and which no wildlife can survive. So if you're living in a bush area, the worst place you can build your house is at the top of a north-northwest-facing very steep slope on the north side so you get the sun. But if a fire comes through there, it will tear up that face in moments engulf your house before you have any opportunity to leave if you haven't already left. In fact, that happened to Brian Nala, uh, the TV presenter, and his wife um, in the uh, Black Saturday fires, the ones that burnt through uh, King Lake National Park. And unfortunately, he and his wife uh, perished in that, in that blaze. What, what kind of speeds do the fires travel on a northern slope out of just... I don't have specifics on the speed, but um, firefighters uh, who watched a watched the fire in uh, 2067, they watched it burn from the Warangatta River up to the Eastern Ridge. They figured that was about three kilometres, and they reckon they'd burn up there in three minutes. Well, yeah. Three kilometres. It's simply... So with each 10-degree increase in slope you've got the intensity of the fire and the speed of the fire doubles. So with each 10 degree increase in slope, you've got double intensity, double the speed. So not even a sand is going to be able to outrun that, are they? Um, there's no way in the world a sand is going to outrun that. Nah. Not the biggest stag on earth is going to outrun that fire. These fires, of course, have happened in North America and firefighters, many have perished being on those, north, those in fact, south faces in North America, reversed the situation for the Northern Hemisphere. And uh, the fact that, remember, there was a book written about it uh, by the author of A River Runs Through It. And uh, these firefighters perished. They had no hope of getting off that north face. They were just engulfed in no time. Uh -huh. So in the January 2000, 2003, a catastrophic fire devastated 20 kilometres by four kilometre swathe of the Minamita River Valley near Romeo. Immediately after this fire, a local Zamba hunter, Travis Carroll, spent several days walking this valley searching for dead and survivors. Travis found 46 dead Samba and tracks in the ash told of just one survivor. I was actually up there with uh, Travis at the time for uh, one day of that searching. It was many years before Samba returned to their previous density. Now, because that valley was burnt by this catastrophic fire, I flew over with Ben Buckley and got the fires and it was absolute moonscape. And um, the, what happens with these catastrophic fires, they don't just burn everything on the surface. They actually destroy the whole structure of the soil, burn all the humus, 
there's no structure left. So then when you get this heavy rain that often follows these fires within a month, can be torrential, and it happened here in the Mittermitter River Valley after the Turbo Fee fire, uh, it just washed everything into the rivers. It, and what had been soil-clad slopes, when they are, you drove up there and they were just rock faces. And all that soil, because it had nothing, no humus, no structure to hold it together, just filled the rivers. Stripped bare, wow. Stripped bare. So there's an ecosystem gone, essentially, isn't it? Uh, that's taken decade more to recover. Yeah, yeah. Unreal. Of course, it affects the fishing incredibly badly as well. A lot of fish died simply through lack of oxygen. It happened to the Tambo River after this recent fire two years ago. The Tambo River was actually blocked by soil, the whole river. Kilometres of soil filling the rivers. Anyhow, while flying with Ben, uh, I took many aerial photos of that moonscape, plus photos of, of, from the ground of many dead samba scattered along the riverbank and in the water, and all of these photos appear in volume two of the book. It's... Um... So it's looking like mortality rate is incredibly high. There's just no way out for a Samba and those kinds of effects, is there? It's, you know, a uh, there's people... absolutely no way out. Because um, what, what Samba do, Samba didn't evolve, having evolved in South Asia, and even though they've, they also evolved in India, and India does have forest fires, the history of forest fires in India is not intense fires like we have here. They don't have the intensity of fires that we have in North America have. So Samba have not evolved with the biology or tactics, strategies to uh, avoid any intense fire. Uh, and so they simply get burnt. They, for a start, Samba can't sweat. They don't sweat like a horse or a Brumby. You know, you know Brumbies or horses cool off with a lather of sweat. Well, Samba can't do that. They don't have any sweat glands. The best they can do to cool off is to pant. And it's a very inefficient method of cooling or, and or go into the rivers, go into water and cool off. Uh, and so typically they run down ahead of the fire. When these fires hit, you know, it's 40 degrees. So obviously where are Sam are going to be when the fire comes, they're going to be in the shade on the south side. And the, the, Fire will roar up the north face, cross the ridge, then starts coming down at a slower rate on the south side. But what Samba do is clearly, and the, the bodies along the riverbanks uh, are evidence of this, they run to that thick cover that typically grows along the riverbanks. Whenever Samba are chased by predators, danger, they run to thick cover. Uh, and so they run to the riverbanks, but basically what they're doing is running into the oven they're running into the fuel source, the tense fuel source, uh, dogwood, tea tree, or broom. They're running in there and they, they stop uh, because that's, that's their normal strategy to avoid predators. They stop and remain still, avoid detection. What happens is they get scorched, they get absolutely burnt. And the rivers aren't wide enough to, for them to go out into the middle and have a buffer zone from the heat. None of these rivers are as size of some of those in North America where elk have done that, gone out into the centre of the river. So they had a 50-metre buffer zone. That's not possible with most of these rivers here. They could do it in the dams like Dartmouth, 
and Yildon, but certainly not in the rivers. So the other yeah. thing that stops Samba from outrunning a fire, catastrophic fire, is that it's well known, it's an absolute fact that these fires, when they, um, they come, before they've even come over the north face across the ridge, they've spotted ahead on the next north face and the north face after that. And then that fire starts being drawn back towards the main front. The Samba down in the gully, on the, on the gully floor, uh, river valley floor. Um, now, this fire has now been drawn back towards the main front. And when it's drawn back towards the main front, you have convection columns. And what happens is all the oxygen has been burnt out of that valley. It's been burnt, destroyed. Um, Samba are caught there with no oxygen. And that's why you'll find after these, even not catastrophic fires, but moderate to high intensity fires, you'll find patches of gullies, uh, gully bottoms, river bottoms that survive the burn or escape the burn. And that's because all that oxygen was burnt out by this front, burning back towards the main front, burning out all the oxygen, fire went out because simply can't burn without oxygen. It's, it's consumed it all. Now, people say, you know, or oh, a big stag can outrun a fire. It's just, it's just simply not true. Yeah. And yeah, certainly plenty of big stags have been found killed by the fires. Look, it's, all right, for argument's sake, if there is a, if a, a Samba does not outrun a fire, but we'll say it's, um, it's, it's home ground, is burnt out. Well, is there any evidence that the Samba remain in their home range after it's been burnt out? Or they just, do they move on? Do they flee to greener pastures? No, that's, um, look, after the 2003 fire, I spent a lot of time on the ground in the upper Livingston, uh, going over the same spots, going to the same beds, that were now burnt, that I'd been kicking Samba out, spooking Samba out, seeing Samba in during the, during the three years before that, that I'd been hunting that area frequently. I mean, I was guiding there. I was there for five days at a time, you know, every second week from May to the end of uh, August, September. Uh, I was kicking Samba out of the same burnt beds. They were still there. Uh, and here's another really good example I saw in 2003, in the winter, um, when, of course, you know, the old saying I have, um, when the mercury plummets, Samba fuel requirements soar, freezing cold in the upper limits, and, you know, frost down to minus eight, nine, uh, high rainfall, a very cold, uh, windswept environment, one of the coldest places I, I ever guided. Now, what happened, um, there was a, that 2003 fire burnt right down from Omeo, right down the east-facing side, and for 10 kilometres back to the west from that. It burnt all the way down. It burnt right round to the headwaters of the Upper Livingston. It burnt right up and over the Great Dividing Range, which, which actually divides the Upper Livingston uh, headwaters from the Wentworth headwaters. Then it burnt further around and stopped on the edge of the west-facing side. Now, running right up the middle of this valley, the, this headwater valley, is a, a, 
private property that's, that's cleared, mostly cleared, but not com completely cleared, but it's used for uh, beef cattle production. So it's got reasonably good pastures. Now, in the three years that I'd been there, I had never seen Samba come out in daylight from either side, the east-facing or the west-facing, come out on that open farmland to feed before dark. Never. Certainly um, in moonlight, I saw up to 20 out there feeding shoulder to shoulder. On dark nights, it's, I was using night vision binoculars back then. And uh, right on dark, when it was pitch dark, suddenly five or six amber would trot across uh, from either side. They come from all points of the compass to feed there, but not until pitch dark. But in the winter after the AAA 3 fire, when these deer were extremely hungry and there was very little food forage back in the forest, these deer came out nearly an hour before dark to feed on that open farmland. But here's the thing. They only came out from that east-facing side. None, including young stags, none came out from the west-facing side. And that's simply because there was still food on the west-facing side. But these samba that come out from the west, from the east-facing side had no food. So you should ask, well, why didn't they just go across the 300-yard valley floor, 350 yards, to the east-facing side and feed there? And the answer is simple. I mean, well and truly proven, I think in particular uh, by Thane Riney, who's an absolute... Uh, home range expert, because those deer have a home range and their home range was delineated by that valley floor. So they could not come across, move across into this unburned area because it was the home range of other deer. It's a bit like you having your house burnt down and say, I'll go into a neighbour's place. It's going to be a stash in there. Yeah. And depends what exactly the case with Samba. If, <laughs> if deer try and go into the home range of others, there's a stoush. Yeah. Even with the hinds, the hinds will fight. It's their home range. And they, def they yet you could say they do defend that home range from others that try and invade it. So, Samba are social intolerant animals, and that's also a, fact, a contributing factor here. Now, to prove home range again, Whilst I was uh, guiding on that spot, I, I was up there often, even between hunts, guided hunts. And uh, one night I was, there was full moon and I was on my own and I was going down the west facing, uh, the east facing farm fringe, walking down the valley floor on the cleared farmland, but sticking close to the uh, low bushy eucalypts to break my outline because I was approaching a stag that was up close to the west facing forest. And then he tweaked me. And so what did he do? He's only 50 metres from the west-facing forest. But this deer, he runs the 300-plus yards across, right across the open valley floor to the west-facing, to the east-facing side. And not only that, he hit my scent line. What did he do when he hit my scent line? That was so interesting. He stopped like he'd hit a brick wall. So then he backed up, he went at it again, he stopped again. Then he backed up even further and he just launched over top of that. 
And it just goes to show you that was his home range. And when, and this is one of the things that Thane Riney teaches in his book, his incredible book, Study and Management of Large Mammals. It's an 800-page treatise. It's an absolute amazing book about home range and dispersal of large mammals. So this deer goes to his home range. Now, I've seen other examples of that. Um, I went out to review a Seiko Finlight to him when I was running the magazine. I snuck up the valley floor, lowest impact route in, cleared. I was in, uh, I was in the scent-proof box at uh, by 7. With it, it's right on first light. It was October 22nd. I remember that. And I had to review this Finlight. Normally, I do all my shooting with a camera. And it's the first time I'd taken a rifle out for years. So I'm in the scent-proof box. Within 20 minutes, this young stag appears uh, in a mini hub right in front of the scent proof box, which is why I've got the scent proof box set up there overlooking a mini hub. And uh, he's so agitated. And I've seen plenty of sandbar from that scent proof box out in this mini hub. I was never agitated. This deer was made, he was so agitated, uh, you needed a high shutter speed to get a clear, to get a sharp photo. Anyhow, I took the shot, 3006. Boom, and he took off, and he stopped again 60 metres later because he was badly wounded, he was finished, one more shot. Right, but so what's the point here? The point is this deer had come through a saddle, he'd come uh, come through a funnel, he'd come down a spoke because it was uh, going to be a 24-degree day, so he's heading for the south side. So even though he hit my scent line, that's why he was so agitated, he still crossed it because he nothing will stop them from going to their home range was exactly what Thane Riney has written. So there's I can speak at length about this, about home range, and I think it's a really important thing to understand because so many people, uh, hunters, just have they just, they don't have any idea about the fact that there is home range, core home range, there's higher loyalty to home range. You can't drive the deer out of their home range. Uh, they think that, you know, that the deer, when the fire comes through, the deer all catch the bus to the, you know, the next unburned area where they stay and set up home there. It's simply not true. You cannot drive these deer out of their home range. Hound hunters know that. The hinds run in circles. You can't drive them out. Big stags will run up and down the river valley, chased by hounds for six to seven hours until they're virtually exhausted. I'll try and bid the pack good day and head over the lower saddle. And there's two really good stories in volume two uh, and three about two stags that were taken by hunters who were stationed on that saddle, Sugarloaf Saddle in the northeast, in the Buffalo catchment. Uh, one was a genuine 36-incher taken by Paul O'Brien. From Myrtleford, um, those deer were heading after being basically exhausted, being run up and down. But they didn't want to leave that core home range for six or seven hours of being pursued and only did so when they're getting close to exhaustion. So if they're not, you know, if a deer doesn't get pushed out of its home range by a fire or by a hound team or we'll call it... Um, uh, high foot traffic or, you know, a heap of hunters in the same valley, they're just obviously going to move to somewhere where they 
they know that they're safe, but but not far. They're always going to be within that. How big's that home range? How big's a you know a square kilometer range for a, a stag or a hind? Right. Um, Saint Vin- in Saint Vincent Island, Florida, where they have both uh, samba and white-tailed deer, they did uh, radio studies of radio-coloured samba to determine their home range. And what they found was they did about four stags and uh, four or five hinds. And, of course, what they found was with increasing age, the size of the home range increased with both stags and hinds. Young stags and young hinds, it was relatively small, you know, 330-odd acres. Uh, 338, because that was about all it was. Although I need to refer to my notes to uh, be absolutely certain about those home range sizes. Certainly, though, the... um, the eight to nine-year-old stag had a home range of um, 650 thereabouts hectares or 1,500 acres. And it was seven kilometres by one kilometre. But that home range was much bigger than a younger five-year-old stag. Um, but so, yeah, yeah, it was 647 hectares. I just found my notes on that. Uh, then they they had four radio-coloured hinds were studied, a two, three, five, and a 12-year-old. The size of their home ranges increased with age. The two- and three-year-old's home range were just 130 hectares or 330 acres. The five-year-old's was 164 hectares or 410 acres, whilst the 12-year-old mature hind's home was much larger at 373 hectares or 682 acres and approximately two kilometres by two kilometres. Now... My studies show that the home range mature hinds in southeastern Australia, this is based merely on direct observations, is similar. Similar to this. Um, in Victoria, a 30 or 30 inch mature stag, photos of which appear in the home range chapter of my Hunt Smart System book, was shot by Jim Lay, seven kilometres where it was photographed by a trail camera. These photos show beyond any doubt. It is the same stag uh, that was photographed that Jimmy harvested. Then I've seen another trail cam photo of a mature 30-inch stag that's also shot seven kilometres from where it was photographed. So, you know, there's some anecdotal information. I can't call it evidence, but it certainly indicates that maybe our stags have a similar home, very similar home range to that, what they found on St. Vincent Island, Florida. But just in relation to that home range of uh, white-tailed deer, um, black-tailed deer, I think I need to go back to that. If you don't mind, I'll skip back to that, Justin. Yep. Yes, certainly. Yeah, it's worth bringing up um, after reading it in your, your book. Yep. I think it's, it's definitely right. worth highlighting. I'll just start with what Fane Rhine, T-H-A-N-E-R-I-N-E, found and wrote in his book. Um so I've talked about um, finding the fires, finding the samba still bedding in the same burnt areas. And this is not surprising because in here is what I'll call a blue chip, genuine blue chip book, Study and Management of Large Mammals. Wildlife, I was saying, Ronnie, wrote that many species of deer and antelope have such high fidelity or high loyalty to their home range that they refuse to leave even when they are starving. And there is plentiful forage just outside their home range. Ryan went on to say that many mammals have such high fidelity to home range that it's virtually impossible to drive them out. 
Ronnie gave an example of black-tailed deer that was starving on one side of a stream that was just 20 feet wide and two feet deep. But they refused to cross it, even though there was excellent forage right on the other side. He explained that this was due to their high fidelity or high loyalty to their home range, which they had established on that side of the stream. So the stream is a delineating line on that side of their home range. Just as the upper Livingston open uh, farmland strip, long strip of farmland, 300 yards wide and at least, uh, I'd say, a kilometer, two kilometres long, was delineating range, delineating, so, uh, delineating uh, side of their home range up there. Those deer that came out after July 35 from the uh, east-facing side, they wouldn't go across. So that was their delineating range. Now, I just only in the last few days, just by pure chance, I happened across some research from California, recent research that supports everything that Ryanie has said and everything that I have found. And I'm saying, um, following the 2018 catastrophic fire in California, and this is in the north um, northwest coast of California, by the way. So it's north, it's north heading towards um, the northern border. Researchers discovered, to their surprise, that black-tailed deer demonstrate a powerful loyalty to their small home ranges. Returning after the fire and living on the scorched ground, even though high-quality, unburned habitat was available about a mile away. Now, this just adds further, this is real evidence. This is radio-collared deer. The research involved 18 radio-collared deer living on 5,358-acre research centre. This is a forest. This is all forest. This fire burned 450,000 acres in Northern California, including half, about that's about 225,000 acres of this research centre forest. The deer had been collared and monitored for other research, but the fire offered, this fire offered a unique opportunity to record their movements and feeding patterns before, during, and after the fire. Of the 18 collared deer, 13 had home ranges within the burn perimeter. And this allowed researchers to compare deer movement in the burned and unburned areas. And the, it's, the findings absolutely surprised the research because it contradicted earlier predictions and such, and the expectations of the researchers that ungulates such as deer and other large mammals living in California's scrubland would flee the burned areas and remain in untouched habitat until there was regrowth in their home range. All collared deer survive with the most, with most returning to home ranges quickly, some in just a few hours. Only one deer that traveled four kilometers fleeing the fire took a couple of days to return. Despite the severe lack of forage causing them to lose most of all their body fat, all 13 deer managed to survive. Upon returning to their burned homes, the deer gravitated to patches of surviving vegetation and woodland habitat, which provided some forage and cover. Where high intensity furnos rage, complete recovery can take decades. This was their comment. Deer and many other animals have learned to deal with the naturally occurring low intensity fires, not catastrophic, 
not high but low intensity fires that have been a part of the North American landscape for millennia. Now, a part of my study also included studying the fires in the Benambra area. And I found what, what I just read there sums up exactly what I found with the Samba in the Benambra area. They hadn't left. And they were feeding on these areas, uh, gully floors that had escaped the fire due to lack of oxygen. They hadn't left, but what they had done had actually gone out the scant cover on the on, that was on farmland near the edge of the burnt forest, and they were living there. And even though they were in my presence, two hundred yards away, they they were not alarmed and they didn't try and move. The thing I found was that when the fire burned through, immediately these deer were in shock, absolute shock. Yeah, Errol, I was going to ask you about that because. Um, um, in volume two, you had a photo of a young stag bedded sort of in, in like a, a totally burnt out area there. Um, it's, it's really fascinating that, that they, they won't, won't, that the power of that to home range is so strong because he's sort of just staying there, staying there in, in a sort of devastated area with no food. But, you know, humans are just walking by and he wasn't fussed. Yeah, that's true. That photo was taken by the late Peter Dennison, who was a keen samba hunter from Bensdale. And he had a stone cottage up there uh, at Victoria River, Kabungra. That's where the photo was taken after 203 fire. In fact, uh, that's a really good, Peter gave a really good first hand account of uh, how the oxygen is burnt out. Peter went outside with the idea uh, of, of fighting the fire. And he had to go immediately return to inside the cabin because he couldn't breathe. There was no oxygen left to breathe. Um, and firefighters up there have had their uh, motors go out, motors stop, no oxygen to operate. Um, but this particular uh, young stag, he wouldn't stand. He probably had burnt feet. After all, he's in the ash. But the other thing is they don't just get their feet burnt badly, but they inhale so much uh, incredibly hot air, it, it apparently burns their lungs. And many of these deer that appear unburnt die within days. And, and that's been the uh, eyewitness accounts from uh, mountain cattlemen who lived in these areas, who've seen these deer after the fire and then noticed several days later they were dead. Yeah, which, which of course... Um... Firefighters, a lot of firefighters sort of have succumbed to that as well over the years. So that sort of stands to reason, doesn't it? Yeah. And the other thing about the firefighters is that when these deer are heading down towards the river and you've got fire access, fire, fire truck access, the fire trucks head to these uh, farmland areas to protect property, protect the houses. But what happens is Samba being so skittish, they won't be so scared of the fire truck because it's um, an artifact to mankind. It's, it was ne never had a fire truck throughout evolution, stalk, kill, and eat a, a samba. So they're not so scared of fire trucks. But the firefighters on the ground, the Homo sapien upright form, they run back into the fire. They've been seen running back into the fire to avoid that. And just on that point, Rod Barford told me that the Briagalong CFA truck 
recorded temperatures of 65 degrees Celsius right in front of the main, the fire front at the McAllister River, 65 degrees Celsius. That's incredible. That's and incredible. the deer came out, some of them were smoking. They all had their tongues hanging out. Right, so they're, they're suffering badly from heat stress and they've only been coming down the south side. They've been coming down. What the hell is their hope of crossing the river and running up the north side? Remember, everything turns to, to darkness during these fires. There's ash everywhere. It's smoke. It's black. And you've got temperatures around 60 degrees plus in front of the fire front. The idea that Sambra outrun these catastrophic and high-intensity fires is simply not true. And there's been so many carcasses, you know, to testify to that fact. Yeah, well, I mean, when you actually look into it and consider and can, you know, consider those factors that you've just sort of covered for us with every 10 degrees, it's doubles in speed and intensity. You know, anyone that spent any time in those hills knows that 45 degree slope is nothing. Um, what, what happens then? After we have a catastrophic burn, uh, so, such as say we had we had you know a couple of years ago there or eighteen months ago, uh, and and a fire's just sort of ripped through a home range of some of some samba. What are they? How do they? How do they sort of survive in the weeks and months after the blaze has gone through? Well, I'll just make the point to start off with on these catastrophic fire burns. Uh, in two thousand and three, there was only four catastrophic fire days. It burnt uh, 1.3 million hectares over 59 days. It was only four days that were catastrophic. In 2006-07, it burnt 1.2 million hectares over 69 days, of which five days were catastrophic. Now, when they're catastrophic, these fires burn more than 20 kilometres in a day. Samba's home range, you know, is at best, eight Ks. And we'll just describe the conditions. There's no way they can they can be peak athletes in these conditions. It's just not possible. The other thing to factor in, you know, these white-tailed deer survive, but the white-tailed deer evolved in North America. The black-tails, I mean. They have strategies to overcome fire because they evolve there. Samba don't. Um, so anyhow, if you just, oh, so the immediate survival after that in these catastrophic days, they go into what I call, I just determined from watching them up, uh, in Bernambra and, uh, Omeo, I called it survival mode where they did only what was required to survive, nothing else. There was so little forage, they hadn't, course they had no energy and an indication of how little forage they had is that samba on normal forage defecate many probably up to a dozen pellet groups in 24 hours with 80 pellets per group after this fire in these burned areas i had trouble finding a pellet group i find tracks of deer I find browse lines up to three metres high and think, you know, he just whoever ate that had to be on a trampoline. They must have been leaping up for the food. But the pellet groups I've found, unlike the green, soft, 
uh, normal pellet groups, these only had 30 pellets and they were brown, dry. Uh, it was difficult to find a rub tree, if, if any. What preaching and wallowing was absolutely limited, restricted. They absolutely went into survival mode during that first autumn and winter. However, that was there, that was during that millennial drought when there was no rain occurred up there. Because again, it's all site it's all site specific, but it was a catastrophic burn up there. Absolutely catastrophic. But if you go back to areas where Cool, cool to moderate intensity burns, and then they have good rainfall within a month. There's plenty of food to get them through the, the first autumn and winter. You know, it's mostly grasses, blackberry, uh, tree fern fronds, uh, but there's food to get them through. But again, it's it's all about the site specific circumstances of a fire. Combine a catastrophic with drought afterwards, a drought before. Um, Samba are, are in a lot of trouble for survival. Righto. We're going to leave it there with another week's to come. Hope you enjoyed it. We had a ball getting there all back to have a yarn with us again. Uh, endless sea of knowledge regarding Samba deer and the habitats and habits. Hope it's worthwhile. That's what we're going for this year. Quality and a little bit of silly silly buggers, but mostly quality over quantity. Take it easy, everyone. We'll see you next week.